Our scripture today comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here is a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to turn it over to a longtime friend of the Gateway Church, Nick Nebra. That makes me sound old. And I am a very young man. I'm going to move back over onto my spot here. Well, it's good to be back with you all today. Uh, yes, my name is Nick. Uh, I spoke back in November, at the end of November, uh, and Pastor Kyle and his family are on a little trip to be with their family this weekend, and so he asked me to fill in again, and it's my pleasure uh, to do so. If you weren't here back in November, I will reintroduce myself as briefly as humanly possible, okay? Uh, again, my name is Nick. Uh, I love Des Moines, and my wife and I moved back uh, just this past summer to begin the process of planting a new church here in the city. Uh, we are planting an Anglican church, with that, which there are none of in Des Moines currently. Uh, if you're wondering what is an Anglican church, a very quick, again, definition. Uh, we, as a church, are trying to follow what we call a middle way in Latin, a via media. Uh, that is basically that we're trying to take the richness of the church's historical traditions for the past 2,000 years and blend those or express them in a way uh, that makes sense that makes sense in our day and age. So basically we're taking like an ancient, wow, there's a lot of wind in here, <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm just glad you guys like church jokes. Uh, we're trying to blend those into like a stew that we hope uh, is good for the kingdom of God in Des Moines. That's, that's our main purpose. And so if that doesn't make sense to you, you can just Google us after church, okay? All right. 
So today is two weeks till Easter. Is everybody aware of that? If you're, if, you're, if you're following a Lenten fast, if you've taken up some fast for the season of Lent, you are only two weeks away from being done with it. Praise God, fasting is hard, especially when you're like 30 days into a fast. It can be quite difficult. Next week is Palm Sunday, uh, which is always the beginning of the liturgical week that we call the week of Easter. It begins with Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem and, and culminates with Good Friday and the Resurrection Sunday on Easter. And so uh, I would like to tell you as a pastor who is doing a favor for another pastor who is my friend, uh, one of the greatest joys that the church has is celebrating Easter with like exuberance and joy. And so I would like to encourage you. There we go. Somebody's turning the, turning the air off. Uh, I would like to encourage you, be exuberant for Easter. Uh, one of the, it's this beautiful thing when a community can come together and just really celebrate that day. And so as you gather here as the Gateway Church on Easter, I would just pray that you would be thoughtful about that and think deeply about what it means to celebrate in that Easter joy together. So that's just a brief encouragement for you today. But today we get the privilege of looking at the scriptures for a little bit together from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 5. So, do I have any readers in the room? Just raise a hand if you are a reader. Not can you read, but do you like to read, <laughs> right? So your idea of a good Sunday afternoon is like four hours curled in the corner with a paperback of some kind. Uh, you just like stories, and you like engaging in that process of reading. It's tactile. It's more fun to you than like watching a movie or uh, or just sitting around staring at your phone. It's a it's a good endeavor. But any good novel on just a surface level, any good novel that we enjoy reading, can be enriching just for the story itself, right? Whether you're reading like uh, an important novel that has like all of this historical importance laid over top of it or whether you're reading just like a cheesy crime novel there is something about the just the story on the surface that is enriching it might help you just uh veg out for a second but the best novels and the most masterful stories do that they ha they tell us a surface story but under under the surface under this like surface level story there's also simultaneously some type of communication that's also going on. And that second level of communication that's happening under the surface of any good story is usually something that the author is trying to communicate to us about values or ideas. Something deeply seated or deeply held by this author that they want us to catch. They want us to enjoy the story, but they want that story to have a kind of transformative work in our minds, or I would say in our hearts, and that, that deeper level story is the thing uh, that elevates a just like kind of a novel that is a story to something more, uh, more rich, more meaty, more significant. So an example of this that you all might be familiar with if you grew up in America and you went to our schooling system are novels like Animal Farm or Lord of the Flies. Anybody grow up reading those two? Uh, those books told what some might say is a compelling narrative. I didn't happen to like either of them all that much. Uh, a, a narrative that, that is a story, right? One's about animals who put on clothes, which is a good story. And the other one is about a bunch of people on an island who end up hurting one another. But they, they communicate that reality on a deeper level, right? Animal Farm is about socialism, I guess. 
and Lord of the Flies is is about the barbarism of human society, which is great to understand when you're 14, right? Uh, But there are far far more sophisticated versions of this as well, aren't there? Uh, My favorite author is a guy named David Foster Wallace. Are you guys familiar with David Foster Wallace? Uh, He wrote a big book. It takes like a month and a half to read if you read it for like an hour and a half a day every day. It's called Infinite Jest. And on the surface, this book, it's a big postmodern tome. It's like this big. Uh, But on the surface, that book is all about a tennis academy in a dystopian future, which sounds like a hoot, I know, but it actually is a good book. But under the surface, that book is all about all kinds of things, like ambition and longing and human connection, and also the way that digital media kind of ruins our interpersonal relationships. But I want to submit to you today that the Gospels, and really the whole of the biblical narrative, are meant to be read as one of these, as, like one of these truly deep and significant novels, like on multiple levels. They are communicating truths to us or ideas and themes that are meant to resonate far deeper than the surface level story. Now, the surface level story is incredibly important. And we, can, uh, and we can read it on that level. But there's something going on with the gospel, and I think specifically the gospels, and specifically John's gospel, that is incredibly important. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a depth there, or there's a weight, that it, as we invest our time and energy in it, always returns back something beautiful. I remember reading the gospels as a young person and, and having this thought, like, there's stuff going on here. I don't have access to what it is, but I know there's some type of meatiness, some type of depth behind it that, that I'm trying to get at. Now, this depth to the scriptures or this, like, kind of uh, literary uh, heft that the, that the gospels have can also be mishandled or misunderstood. Some people think that the Bible is kind of like a puzzle that needs to be decoded. And as soon as they're able to do that, they like unlock, like they're playing a video game, right? They unlock another level of knowledge or like the, or like the Bible is a kind of puzzle box. Uh, and that's not the way I mean this, right? I mean it in a literary sense. That because everything in the story of the scriptures is meant to point us to Jesus. It's just that the gospel writers are doing that in such a sophisticated way that there are levels down as we go and we look through the passage. Not to unlock some hidden knowledge or to set ourselves apart or kind of puff ourselves up. Uh, Not to figure out some truth about what's going to happen in the future or something like that. The gospels uh, are this beautifully woven kind of tapestry of truth and reality that as we invest our lives in them, as we actually pour ourselves over them and into them, they begin to return back treasures to us that we didn't even know were there. Now, if you don't do that, and you just read the gospel stories on the surface level, that is also okay. That is okay. You, you can just read them straight. You can just read them as what they are. And that is all you need as well. You get a coherent picture of Jesus. You see that he lived and that he died on the cross and that he rose again. You will see that we are summoned by the Holy Spirit and by the story of Scripture itself to put our trust in him, to follow him. And uh, with our whole lives and in baptism, then to be enfolded into this community of Jesus followers we call the church. You can get all of that just from a surface reading of the text. 
but there is a beauty to the Bible that is also rewarded with a kind of deep investigation. They are sophisticated writing that are communicating ideas about realities that are deeply rewarding if we invest our time in studying them. And our story today, and particularly John's gospel, I think is the best place to start out when you really start diving deeper into the scriptures in this way, because John, I think, explicitly invites us to read his biography of Jesus in this way, to read it not just on a kind of surface level, but to actually begin to read it as a whole, to begin to pick up on themes or ideas that are woven throughout the story that give the story more depth of meaning and significance. You see, John does not pack his biography of Jesus's life full of just a bunch of details. He's really specific about what he shares with his audience. In specific, John doesn't shit give us a ton of miracles of Jesus. He gives us seven. There, uh, scholars say that there are these seven miracles of Jesus that John outlines as these seven signs. Now, if John is giving us miracles as signs, he's giving us uh, these miracles as signs of something, right? So what is it that Jesus, or excuse me, that John is trying to do when he is specifically giving us seven distinct miracles that are meant to point beyond themselves to some deeper reality about Jesus? And in our teaching text for today, John, we are in the third sign of John's seven signs. And in this story, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem for a religious festival. We don't know what festival he's in town for. Uh, scholars posit different festivals that he might be in town for. But the important thing to know is that he is in Jerusalem. He's at the center of the religious life of the Hebrew people, right? That's where he is physically. That's where he's located in Jerusalem. And he's there on what is most likely a high holy day of some kind. And so the religious impulse of the crowd is very high. There are pilgrims there. There are people there. The city's buzzing. And Jesus comes into an area of town by the Sheep Gate in, I think, in the early 19th century. We've actually, uh, archaeologists have actually uncovered this part of the old city of Jerusalem. So if you were to go to Israel today, you could see this, uh, this, this pool with these five colonnades. Uh, they're there. But as Jesus walks into this area, what does he see? He sees a bunch of infirm people. He sees a bunch of people with physical difficulties. He sees a bunch of sick people. And they're all gathered around this pool because there was this common belief at this time that, there, that this pool would be stirred from time to time by a divine being, by an angel, and that if you were the first one to be able to hop into the pool after the angel stirred the waters, that you would be healed. Now, we are not told if this is a true account or if this is some type of urban legend. We're not told that. The point is, and I think the important piece about this story is, is that this is a time in human history where this was simply believed. It was simply taken for granted that miracles happened. Unlike our day where people believe that the miraculous is impossible. And I, I will just tell you, I don't necessarily think we're better for, having, for being more uh, scientifically educated and thinking that miracles don't occur. So lest we look down our noses at these people, it's, it's just important to know that these people had this inherent belief that the miraculous was possible. 
And so Jesus walks into this group of hurting people and discovers one man that has been disabled for 38 years. And he sees this man, and he is apparently moved with compassion for him. And so Jesus asks the man a question. And the question seems really obvious to us because the man is in this region of these pools in order to be healed. That's why he's there. That's what he wants to do. And Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? This man has been disabled, and he's trying to receive a miracle by being lifted up into these pools. And Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? And I think this communicates something to us today about the character of Jesus and the nature of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus will not violate this man's will. He, Jesus does not violate your will. He is dogged in his pursuit of people. He is the hound of heaven, as the English poet Francis Thompson put it. His love will track you down. I think that's true. But he will not violate our wills or our personhood. Because in the kingdom of God, and in your journey with Jesus, and in my journey with Jesus, you will not be forced into anything. God will never force you to do anything. In the kingdom of God, we are always invited to participate with what it is that God is doing by his spirit. Never coerced. Never made to do anything that we don't want to do. Never forced. God's grace is extended to us, but it, God's grace is never coercive or manipulative. It is always invitational. Many of us, I believe, have a picture of God that is opposite of that. I think many of us, if you, if you grew up in church, probably it's more likely that you have a view of God that God's maybe a little manipulative or coercive. But we get a different picture in this story, don't we? Of Jesus, who is moved with compassion for this man, and yet still honors his volition by asking him, like, what do you want me to do for you? Not like just walking around healing people all willy-nilly, right? But actually engaging on a human level in a way that actually engages this man's will, that participates with him in such a way as to bring about his healing. In the kingdom of God, everything is an invitation. Nothing is an obligation. And so Jesus asked the man, do you want to be well? And the man answers, basically, I have no one to help me. Yeah, I do want to be well, but there's no one to help me be well because I can't get up into the pool and somebody's got to literally pick me up and put me in the pool if I'm going to be healed. I wonder if he thought, man, maybe this, this guy's going to help me. Maybe he's, maybe he's offering to pick me up when the waters are stirred. But I would submit to you again that this, uh, that this explanation of this man's need is supposed to be our first step in our journey with Jesus, just as it was this man's first step in his journey with Jesus. Our first step in our journey with Jesus is our willful acknowledgement of our need for him is our willful acknowledgement of our need for Jesus. So this man is disabled. He was in need. There's no one to help him in the pool. And they're standing before him, who, who is one who is able to help. 
but not by picking him up and not by putting him in the pool, but with a single word, right? A declarative statement, right? Pick up your mat and walk. You see, in order to see who Jesus is, and I believe this, and I think the text is pointing us in this direction. In order to see who Jesus is, we need to be able to see and acknowledge our own state of being. And that is, and our own state of being is broken, insufficient, in need. Every human being is flawed. We are not as we should be. You could call this a low anthropology, a low view of the human person. Now, this is, it does not mean that we have a low, a low view of human value, but it does mean that we have a low view of our states of being. I think culture is just constantly mo churning in this direction to kind of raise our view of our brokenness or maybe even like... Um, fix our brokenness in such a way as that we no longer would be broken. Have any of you paid attention to any of like the self-optimization bros on Instagram and stuff that can just like work out so hard that they'll never die or they take all the right supplements or like go do ayahuasca and then they're fine, right? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, basically Aaron Rodgers. Um, culture does not want to admit our brokenness or our need but central to what it means to follow Jesus and central to what it has always meant to be a, a Christian is this acknowledgement of our need and brokenness. And this man's need and his brokenness and, and the acknowledgement of his need for Jesus in this story is juxtaposed with the religious teachers in Jerusalem at this time who are, are like steeped in a system that is meant to that is like kind of built around them like a fence that is to keep them insulated from their own need and desire. And when what Jesus does in this story kind of comes into conflict, conflict with the religious teachers of the day, there is this uh, problem. There is, there is a problem because these religious teachers don't actually see that they are in need. They're, they're judging everything against the standard that they have been given, which is the Mosaic law. And later in, in chapter 5 of this passage, Jesus will say to the religious leaders, if you really understood Moses, you would believe in me because everything Moses says is pointing to me. But they've built up this system of belief to kind of buttress their own understanding of their weakness in such a way that it blinds them to the reality of who Jesus is in their midst. Because the truth is, is that to follow Jesus, to acknowledge him, to know him, is to acknowledge our own need. This is why the church, every time we gather, we confess our sins. This is why the church historically confesses its sins. This is why if you pray, uh, if you pray rhythmically with something like the daily office, you, can, you wake up every morning and you confess your sins. Because there is this through-going understanding in the wisdom of the Christian tradition that to confess our sins is to properly align ourselves under the lordship of Jesus, understanding that we are in need of his help and of his guidance and of his leading and of his spirit to be with us. And that apart from those things, we can't really do all of that much. It's this proper humility and this proper humility of this, 
of, of this man who is disabled is kind of juxtaposed with the hubris of the religious teachers in this context. And I think we are meant to see or we are, we are invited to a posture that is both humble and truthful, but also full of hope. Because it is the ability to see Jesus that this man has that directly leads to his ability to receive what Jesus has for him, which is his healing. And that's what Jesus does, right? He heals him. He says, take up your mat and walk. And the guy does. He takes up his mat and walk and Jesus kind of disappears. Now, Jesus is doing all kinds of things in this story when he tells the man to take up his mat and walk. He is intentionally kind of twisting the nose of the religious teachers in this context because to take up your mat and to move it somewhere was technically against the law. And they thought that if you broke the law, there was no way you could be from God. And so Jesus is... is uh, put placing kind of himself in this tense position with the teachers of the law, showing them that care and concern for the broken is more important than observance to the law, but they can't see it because of their hubris, and they have elevated the law above the needs of regular people in such a way as that Jesus has kind of been, been brought into conflict with these religious leaders. And so that whole thing happens in John chapter 5 as well. But the last thing I want to talk about this morning is found in verses 14 and 15 of this story. Maybe you heard it, or maybe you heard it and were a little disturbed by it. So Jesus finds this man who once was disabled and now is healed and apparently walking around with his bed. And he comes to him at the temple, and he sees him, and he says, See, you are well again. This is in verse 14. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Kind of unsettling, right? A little bit. It sounds like Jesus is threatening him. If you read it like that. It actually sounds like the opposite of what I just said earlier in this message. That Jesus is not violating our will, right? It sounds like a threatening command. Don't you dare go do bad stuff now, guy, because if you do, you're going to get in big, big trouble, right? This is what it sounds like Jesus is saying. Go and sin no more is a command that Jesus does give to people after he heals them. It's a common thing that we hear Jesus say in the Gospels. And it's clear that that's something he said. But are we to interpret this as a kind of threat? That's the question this morning. Is Jesus threatening this man? Go and sin no more. So there is a church father, a guy named Gregory Nanzantius, who was in the fourth century. He was a bishop of Constantinople, I believe. And commenting on this passage of scripture, this is what St. Gregory says. He says, yesterday you were flung upon a bed, exhausted and paralyzed, and you had no one to put you into the pool when the water should be stirred. Today, you have him who is in one person, man and God, or rather God and man. You were raised up from your bed, or rather you took your bed and publicly acknowledged the benefit. Do not again be thrown on your bed by sinning, but as you are, so walk. As you are, 
so walk. I think this is the admonishment that Jesus is giving to the man. Not that he, this man is not going to go about the rest of his life not sinning, because we know that not to be true. Not that this man uh, is ever going to do everything perfectly in his life, and if he doesn't do these perfect things, that he's going to be stricken by God's judgment in some kind of way that feels wrong to us. But that now that he has been healed and he has been able to see Jesus on a deeper level, right? So walk in this reality. If Christ has redeemed you, healed you, forgiven your sins, and if you've been empowered to see Jesus, that Jesus is the son of the living God, the sent one, the Messiah, as you are, now walk. Now walk in it. Do not be flung back on the bed of your own infirmity. Do not deny the reality of life. Do not deny the reality that sin happens and we are flawed and we confess our sins and we are very much in need of forgiveness at almost every turn. I get my kids ready for breakfast five days a week. I sin almost every day. But as you were, as you are, so walk. So walk in this reality, not in fear, not, not believing that God is some like overbearing father that's just waiting in the wings to punish you, but understanding that God is a good God, that he will, has, will, and will continue to heal you, that he will continue to make you well. Constantly cast yourself upon the grace of God, knowing that you are broken and in need, and yet... And yet, Jesus is always there to pick you back up, to heal you once again, to forgive our sins afresh every single day. As you are, so walk. It's a simple encouragement, but it's an important one. You see, the only thing that I think can kind of blind us from our need for Jesus is the kind of hubris that was displayed by the religious teachers in this text. And our faith or religion, and whether that's like capital R religion, like Christianity, or whether it's like a lower case R religion, like all the religions of our day, whether it's a political affiliation or CrossFit or whatever it is, all have this way of creating a kind of self-rightness in us that blinds us to our need for God. They do. And part of the discipline and part of the life of a Christian is to continually be reminded of the fact of who Jesus is. To not allow those, the big R religion that is Christianity or the small R's that are all throughout our culture to blind us to the reality of our need for Jesus or to puff us up. And it's always a temptation because we always want to see ourselves as better than other people. We always want to see ourselves as good or better than we actually are. We just do. We want to, you know, we think that's the key to self-esteem. I don't think it is. I think it's a quick road to blindness and to denying our need for Christ. But if we're able to walk in the reality of who Christ is and what he has done for us, if we're able to continually walk in, in, in the knowledge of our need and of our brokenness, if we're able to continually walk 
in this like through going path of God's never giving up and never ending grace. We won't lose sight of it. And our faith won't turn into a kind of self-writing religious blindedness that always takes us down weird paths. We can walk humbly and we can walk righteously and we can walk graciously before a God who has healed us. Amen?